Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. So good to be with you all and to have the opportunity once again to open God's Word. I don't know about you, it's one of my favorite things to do. I look forward to this every week. And so I want to invite you this morning to turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Uh, Luke 19, find your way there and then uh, just hold your place for a few minutes while I take the opportunity uh, to communicate a number of important things. Last Sunday, I told you we would be communicating um, details about Christmas Eve soon, and so let me do so uh, now. This year, um, I, I, I want to set the tone, though, uh, first by kind of reminding you why we do Christmas Eve services. What's the purpose of Christmas Eve? Uh, first, we do so in order to gather the church family and to celebrate the birth of our Savior. We come together to do that as a church family. Uh, but in second, we, we also do so in order to proclaim the gospel, to share the gospel with unbelievers. Christmas Eve is one of the two times during the year where unbelievers are most likely to come to church. And so on Christmas Eve, we're going to gather to celebrate and proclaim the gospel. Now, I, I say that just to set the tone and to explain what we're going to do this year. Ideally, we would have campuses, we would have uh, Christmas Eve services, all of our campuses, but of course, this year isn't an ideal year. So just for this year, hopefully only, we're going to have three services at two, at four, and six, all at our Danville campus. And here's really the reason for that. Our Danville campus is the, the only auditorium uh, that we have that's large enough to both allow us to social distance and provide enough room for everybody who wants to attend. So uh, I just want to encourage you, um, uh, if you're not able to come, we're also going to live stream the four and the six o'clock services. But if you're able to come and join us, bring your family, bring your friends, invite um, neighbors, coworkers to come so they can hear the gospel and so we can celebrate the birth of our Savior today. It's going to be a great afternoon and evening. Really looking forward to it. So I hope to see you on Christmas Eve. Second, we have an early Christmas gift for you today. You had no idea this was coming, right? No idea. Surprise gifts are really, really good. You know we're in a series on discipleship and money. And The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn is one of the best books on this subject. And every family gets a copy of this today. So we'll have them out in the foyer on your way out. Make sure you pick one up. If you already have one, take one and re-gift it to someone. All right? It'll be a great gift uh, to ride somebody uh, this year. Now, uh, if you're watching online today and you're not in person and you would like a copy of this, if you will in, uh, email us at info at Harmony Bible Church.org, we will have Santa deliver one of these to your house this week. Now, by Santa, I'm referring to the postal service, all right? But we would be glad to provide that uh, with you. Third, and most importantly, next Sunday, we're going to wrap up this series on discipleship and money uh, with a message on the crucifixion. So as we head towards our celebration of the incarnation, we're going to stop and we're going to take some time to talk about the reason that Jesus came. And the reason that Jesus came is to give his life in exchange for ours. In other words, Jesus came to die. So next week, we're going to take a deep dive into the crucifixion. And we're going to talk specifically about how Jesus' sacrifice provides us the motivation that we need to live for him, both in regard to our money and really in all of life. Now, all that said, let's pray. And then we'll get to work this morning. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather as a body around the word. We want to pray that that word will nourish us today. And I want to particularly ask that you will have it to nourish us and how generous and gracious you have been to us. Lord, I pray that we will be overwhelmed 
by how gracious you have been, you are being, and you promise to be in the days ahead. And I particularly, Lord, want to ask that you will help us to, to get a glimpse today of the hope that we have of an eternity full of just being gathered together as your body around you and experiencing your infinite generosity for an eternity. Lord, help us today. We need your spirit. And so we ask for him in Jesus' name, we pray, amen. All right, today we're gonna look at another parable of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, a parable that's entitled The Parable of the Ten Minutes. Now, I know some of you think of a minute as bait, all right? But a minute isn't bait, uh, and you're getting excited right now because you think the sermon is gonna be about fishing. However, a minute isn't the redneck word for minnows. It's a monetary unit. I'm sorry to disappoint you fishermen, but today we aren't going to talk about fishing, but rather about stewardship, about managing the resources God has given us in a way that will assure we receive great rewards in heaven. Right here at the beginning then, let me give you the big question Jesus is going to pose to us today. As we're going to see in a moment, the parable of the 10 minutes is rather complex, but at the bottom line, it forces us to ask one simple question. And that question is, what are we doing with what we've been given? What are we doing with what we've been given? Jesus is going to tell us that there's really only two answers to this question. Either we're being a good steward and managing our resources faithfully, or we're being a wicked steward and managing our resources poorly. I realize that's startling language, but Jesus is going to make it clear that it's either one or the other. We're either a good steward or a wicked one, and that this makes all the difference regarding what our experience will be one day in heaven. So again, here's the question today. What are we doing with what we've been given? And to help us answer this question, let's take a look at our text, picking up in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. These things refer to the dialogue that Jesus had just been having with a wee little man by the name of Zacchaeus. So back up with me and look at this dialogue, picking up in verse nine. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke says that when the crowd hears Jesus speak these words, they begin to get excited because they think that it means that Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem and establish his kingdom and bring salvation to Israel. However, since that's not going to be the case, at least not yet, Jesus goes on to tell a parable to show otherwise. Let's look at that parable picking up in verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, He ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your minna has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. 
Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your minute has made five minutes. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your minna, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, as I said before, this is somewhat of a complicated and I think, as you can see, a little bit of an intense parable. All right. But there's some historical context here that is really helpful in understanding what Jesus is alluding to here. Jesus is playing off of recent events in his day. The current ruler of Palestine was Archelaus, who was the son of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the Herod when Jesus was born. He's the Herod that had the baby boys executed in uh, Bethlehem. But shortly after that event, he died. And when he died, his son Archelaus inherited over half his, his kingdom. However, the title of king could not be inherited. And Archelaus really wanted that title. And so he went on a journey a long journey, in the words of the parable, to Rome to petition Caesar to give him the title. However, at the same time, some of his family members sent a delegation to oppose him becoming the king. Now, Caesar could have uh, settled this pretty easily with a simple pronouncement one way or the other, but he decided to make a mess of things. And he basically said, hey, Archelaus, go back and you prove yourself worthy of being the title and then maybe I'll give you the title. So Archelaus goes back to Jerusalem, the delegation come, uh, comes back to Jerusalem, and guess what happens? Archelaus has all of them executed. Now, he never gets the title of king, but in effect, he was king and he ruled over a kingdom. So that's the background here. But what we have to understand is that this parable isn't about Archelaus, it's about Jesus, Jesus is taking the headlines of the day in order to tell a parable that is going to point people to himself. You see, in the parable, Jesus is the nobleman. Heaven is the far off country to which Jesus will travel after he dies, rises again and ascends back to heaven. The kingdom he will inherit is the one that his father is going to give him when he gets to heaven. And the return of the nobleman is the second coming. So, so let me give it to you again so you understand what's going on here. Jesus is the nobleman. nobleman. The far off country is heaven. He will go to heaven after he dies, rises again, and ascends to heaven, whereby the Father will give him the kingdom, the kingdom which he will one day come to establish here on earth. Now, with all that in mind, verse 13, in verse 13, Jesus says that before the nobleman leaves to receive his kingdom, he gives his servants 
a job to do while they wait for him to return. Look at verse 13 again. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minutes and said to them, engage in business until I come. Understanding that the servants here are Jesus' followers, here's the question that we have to answer. This is critical. What is the business Jesus is referring to? What's the business that he wants his followers to engage in while we wait for his return? Do you see that in verse 13? The nobleman says to his servants, we are servants of Jesus. He's given us resources and he said, engage in business until I return. So we, as his followers, are to engage in business. What is that Business? Well, that business is something that we talk about all the time here at Harmony. That business is gospel proclamation. Our job or our task while we wait for Jesus to return is to spread the gospel far and wide. We know this because at the end of Luke, right before he ascends back to heaven to receive the kingdom, Jesus tells his disciples this, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So this is what we are to give ourselves to until Jesus returns. We're to see that repentance and forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus is proclaimed to everyone. Can I say this to you today? This is what it is all about. Jesus came to this earth. He gave his life. He rose from the dead He ascended back to heaven where the father gave him a name that is above all names, a name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, the father. That's Philippians two. That's not happened yet. We're waiting for that to happen. And while we wait for that to happen, we are to give our lives, everything we have, everything we are to see that the glory of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to every single person on earth. So that when he returns, there are as many people as possible waiting for him to return. Now, here's the key part, though, really the focus of this parable. The focus is that we have been given resources by Jesus with which to engage in the business of gospel proclamation. So verse 13 again The nobleman gives to his servants 10 minutes. He actually gives to them one minute piece. Now, a minute was about three months of wages for labor. So it's a a relatively small amount, but the amount isn't what's important here. What's important is that Jesus has given us resources to engage in this business that he has given us to do. Whether it be time, talent, or treasure, The resources then that we have, whatever they may be, have been given to us so that we might go about the business of seeing the gospel go forth and bear fruit for the kingdom. Here's how commentator Kent Hughes puts it. Every follower of Christ is a steward of the gospel and we have all the same command. Put this money to work until I come back. We must invest the investment Christ has made in us 
We are to multiply our spiritual capital, invest the gospel, increase the yield of the good news of salvation through Christ. I could give you a whole list of ways in which we can do this, but what's most important for us to understand is that this is the business of every Christian. Our business is to get busy giving all that we have and all that we are to see the gospel go forward and bear fruit both in our lives and in the lives of others. So can I just say this to you? Um, If you call yourself a Christian, if you say, I have trusted in Jesus Christ, I am his disciple, I am following him, he is my hope of eternal life, then, then, you have been given resources and you have been given those resources in order that the gospel may go forward so more people can become what you are. And there are no outs here, all right? There are no clauses that say this doesn't apply to me. If you are a Christian, this is what your life is to be about. No exceptions. There are no exceptions. Now, here's why this is so important. It's so important because there's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day of reckoning coming both for those who follow Jesus and for those who reject Jesus. When Jesus returns, he's going to require all of his followers to give an account for how we've managed the resources he's allocated to us. And if we manage these resources well, and by the way, that doesn't mean that you, you, you've made a lot of money. What it means, uh, managing resources well for Jesus means that you've used the resources he's given you for the spread of the gospel. If you've done that, if we've done that, then we'll be greatly rewarded. We'll first receive a commendation from Jesus, and better yet, we'll receive a whole lot more resources to steward. If we're faithful with the the little resources that we've been given in this life, we'll get a whole lot more resources to steward in the next one. I love the promise that Peter gives us in his second letter. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, get this, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So listen, can't most, many, maybe all of us say that Jesus has been generous to us in this life? Can't we say that today? Well, here's the wonderful truth, friends. If we steward the generosity that Jesus has given us now, he promises to be infinitely more generous to us in heaven. That's the promise that we have. We have an incredible opportunity. On the other hand, if we don't manage our resources well, when Jesus returns, we're going to have a much different experience. Jesus says in the parable that first we'll hear words from him of condemnation and then second we'll lose our reward. So again, I know this is startling, but we have to see here that Jesus says that if we don't manage our our resources for the gospel, we're actually being wicked. We need that 
to settle on us here a little bit today. This is not something about which Jesus is indifferent. Jesus is not apathetic regarding how we use what we've been given. And therefore, if we aren't using our resources for the gospel, we shouldn't expect the day of Jesus' return to be a good one for us. I have to tell you that I am really concerned for the many professing Christians who seem to think that the way that they use the things that God has given them is inconsequential. Now, now here's what I base this on. I base this on the fact that today, evangelical Christians give around 2 to 3% of their income. That's the average when you take all the Christians combined. And one of the big problems with that is that there are quite a few Christians who give a huge percentage of their income. But on the other end, there are a lot of Christians that give absolutely nothing. Zip, nada, nothing towards gospel proclamation. And the only conclusion that I can come to when I think about that is that these professing Christians do not believe that Jesus is going to keep his word. Because here's the deal, okay? Here's the deal. If if you really have trusted in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation, that means that you are looking forward to his return, right? Are you you with me on this? If you've trusted in Jesus for eternity, if, if he is your hope of heaven, which all Christians believe and all Christians say, then you're also going to believe that he is going to return one day, right? There are a lot of Christians who don't seem to believe that Jesus is actually going to come back. But if we believe anything that he says, we have to believe that he is actually going to return because he says it over and over and over again. And he also says that when he returns, we're going to have to answer for how we have used the resources he has given us. Now, let me add this here. I don't know if the third servant in the parable is a true believer or not. Jesus isn't explicit as to whether this servant shows by his lack of stewardship that he's not a true disciple or whether he's one of the disciples Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3 who will be saved but will have his work and his reward burned up. So I don't know which one it is, but here's what I do know, though. You don't want to be the third servant, Right? You don't want to be the third servant. You don't want to hear words of condemnation from Jesus. You don't want to hear him say, you wicked servant. What you want to hear from him is you want to hear him say, what? Well done, good and faithful steward. Enter into the joy of your master and receive the great rewards that come along with it. Can I go back to this? Really what it comes down to, this is not ultimately about money. What this ultimately about is where our hope is. And if our hope is truly in Jesus, then we're looking forward to him coming back. And if we're looking forward to him coming back, that means we want to hear, well done, good and faithful steward. Well, how does that happen? That happens by us taking these resources that we have been given And to say, what can I do to use them to see the gospel 
proclaimed and to go forward in my life and in the lives of others. Now, let me take a moment here because I know that this can hit us. Well, maybe come back to this first. Here's the point of the parable of the 10 minutes. Here's the ultimate point. Use it or lose it. Use it or lose it. Look at verse 26 where Jesus gives us really the point. He says, I tell you, that means pay attention to everyone who has, more will be given. That means if you use your resources well, you steward them well, you're gonna get more. But from the one who has not, that's referring to those who don't steward the resources well, even what he has will be taken away. So use it or lose it. Use the resources Jesus has given you for the gospel and be given more resources resources in heaven or lose those resources, both the ones you have and the ones you could have forever. Use it or lose it, brothers and sisters. The choice is up to you. Now then, since I know you may find this heavy, especially if you're struggling financially, let me just take a few moments to, to speak specifically to those of you for whom stewardship seems like a real burden right now. So, so maybe you're in a place where you have an economic difficulty because you've lost employment, or maybe honestly you, you've made some poor decisions and you've spent a lot of money that you shouldn't. Regardless, I just want to speak to you today because I, I know that when we talk about things like this, it can, um, it can induce guilt. I just want to talk about how we deal with guilt in the Christian life, in particular when it comes to money. First, if you're in a difficult spot financially, I encourage you to ask for help. Reach out to a pastor, elder, staff member, community group leader, and say, hey, I need you to come alongside me, and I need you to help me in the situation that we're in. Now, I know you may not want to be a burden, but that's why we're here, right? We're called, Galatians 6, 2, to carry one another's burdens. So if you need help in this area, reach out and we would love to give you help. Second, I encourage you to be generous, be as generous as you can be right now. That might mean you can uh, give very little currently, but as we've seen the last two weeks, it's not about how much you have, it's about what you do with what you have. So give what you can to the gospel. In other words, seek God's kingdom first and then trust that he is going to take care of the rest. Let me share personally here for a moment. And it's a dangerous ground anytime you're going to share personally, especially when it comes to this issue. But I want you to recognize, I just want to say this, that, that anything that I've been able to do in my life is only by God's grace. So he gets all the credit. And so I just want to state that. But I, I am going to share personally because I hope that this is going to be helpful to you. Even I've been married uh, for 24 and a half years now. And during a good portion of that 24 and a half years, our expenses have either matched or exceeded our income. And in that time, and by the way, uh, there are three reasons for that. One has been my foolishness. Two has been our circumstances. And three, God has called us to do some big things that have really, really stretched us. But here is what we have always strived to do. We have always strived to make giving 
to the gospel, priority number one, and to trust that as we uh, sought his kingdom, he would take care of the rest. Now, now by the way, uh, we, we do this because that's what our parents modeled and taught us, all right? This is one of the, the primary things that we learned from our parents. So, so parents, if you want your kids to, to do what we're talking about today, what do you need to do? You need to model it for them. But here's the point. Here's what we have found out over the last 24 and a half years. As we have sought to seek God's kingdom first, he has always met our needs and he has also always gave us more so that we could give more. I just want to tell you at Harmony Bible Church, there are a lot of people that have the same testimony that we do. And so the point here isn't how much you give, it's what you do with what you have been given. And so if you only have a little, prioritize giving to the gospel and trust that God is going to fulfill his word and take care of the rest. Third, in all of this, remember that God is much more concerned with your heart than your giving statement. Did you hear that? God is much more concerned with your heart than your giving statement. Here's what Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians chapter eight. If the readiness, that means the heart is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person does not have. So if you have a heart that wants to steward well and be generous, then you can know you're pleasing God even if currently you can only give a little. If you can only give a little, don't feel guilty. And you don't need to feel guilty because God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. It doesn't say God loves a big giver. It says God loves a cheerful giver. Be faithful to what you've given, given cheerful, cheerfully, and you can know that you're pleasing to God. Now, there's one more thing that we need to talk about and that's how Jesus concludes the parable. So look at what Jesus says about the reckoning those who reject him will face one day. Verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's a hard word, isn't it? That's a word that's fairly shocking to us, especially coming from Jesus. It's a word, if we're honest, that can make us cringe and for good reason. However, there are two really important things that we need to recognize about this statement. One, Jesus often uses strong language to get our attention and wake us up to the danger of rebelling against his rule in our lives. Hebrews tells us that, get this, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jesus does not want us to fall into the hands of the living God. And that's why he repeatedly makes statements like this to, to warn us, to wake us up to the danger of rebelling against his rule in our lives. More significantly, in the rest of the Gospel of Luke, there's actually only one person who gets slaughtered. Do you know who that person is? It's Jesus. You can read the, the, the last five chapters of Luke and you'll find that Jesus doesn't slaughter his enemies, but rather he's slaughtered by his enemies and for his enemies. In, in fact, next week, 
We're going to see as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he cries out to the father and he says, father, do what? Forgive them. Who's the them? It's his enemies. So, so when we see this, what Luke is actually wanting to see underneath of it is that Jesus didn't come the first time to slaughter his enemies. He came to be slaughtered by his enemies and for his enemies. Furthermore, we need to see the brutal truth that we are those enemies. We are the ones who nailed Jesus to that tree. And in dying on that tree, Jesus was dying for us. He was dying in our place. He was dying so that when he comes back the second time, we don't have to face his judgment, but rather can be richly received into his kingdom. So yes, those who continue in rebellion against Jesus will one day face his wrath. When Jesus comes back, he is going to punish all those who oppose him. However, there's an escape from that reality, and that escape is found in surrendering our lives to him and placing our faith in what he did the first time he came. So you can think about it this way. When Jesus comes back, he's coming as a lion. He's coming, honestly, here to wipe out those who oppose him. But thanks be to God, he didn't come as a lion the first time. He came as a lamb, the lamb of God who takes away our sins. How does he take away our sins? He takes away our sins by laying down his life in our place. Therefore, can I, can I just plead with you today? If you have not submitted to Jesus's rule and reign in your life to do so today, to do so right now. So, so listen, there is a judgment day. Everybody has to face a judgment day. If we place our faith in Jesus Christ, that judgment day already took place. And so we can know that when he comes back, there's no condemnation, there's no judgment. But if we don't submit to him, we don't give, give our lives to him right here and right now, when he comes back, we will face that judgment day on our own and none of us will be able to stand in it. And so if you've not experienced the forgiveness of sins, if you have not repented and turned away from them, if you have not seen Jesus as the supreme God, the supreme God who loves you, who gave his life for you, who is coming one day for all those who have placed their faith in him, I invite you and, and, and really would plead with you to do so today. Become his willing servant and receive the assurance that you will not come into judgment, but that you have eternal life. On the other hand, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, if you have experienced the forgiveness of sins, here's my charge to you. Allow Jesus's generous love to motivate you to live for him and use the resources he has given you for the good, both of the gospel and your future. You, you need to look at those resources that you have as an opportunity, as an opportunity to give back to the one who has given so much to you and, and to provide for yourself 
a future where there is great reward. We pray with me today?